Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. G.I. Joe, the very best, America's elite. Eliter than all the rest, trained to have no flaws. Defending liberty across the land, valor oversized. Bring out that big brass band, real heroes verified. Gotta read them all, you must agree. Elitist in history, or there could be no end in a world we must defend. A courageous crew, their colors red, whites, and blue. Mess with them and they'll shoot you. Gotta read them all. Gotta read them all. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Depends on who you're asking, but if you ask me, that's what I say. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details at the website. The website is talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we are continuing our look at the disavowed era with G.I. Joe Special Missions Manhattan from Devil's Due, February 2006, which sort of places it just after the last lot of disavowed issues that we covered. So I slot it in about uh, after issue eight or so is a good place to uh, to do this one. So for those of you reading along, this is collected in G.I. Joe, America's Elite Special Missions trade paperback from March 2007. That edition collects three of the special missions, Manhattan, Tokyo, and Antarctica. Special missions Brazil and the enemy were never collected, so you'll have to get those in the original comic book form when we get to them. After all of that intro, I will not be talking about these comics just by myself. As always, I will be joined by a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hey, Tim! So, so this is a, an interesting one. We've got Special Missions Manhattan, which is made up of one big story, one little story, and one teeny tiny story. Maybe we tackle each one on its own. So rather than giving a, an, an information overload of every single creative team and every single story, let's, let's sort of walk through them one by one, maybe. Sure. Um, I do want to say from the outset that this is a double-sized comic, as as the cover says, it's forty eight pages. Although I'm gonna I'm gonna add an asterisk to that. <laughs> four ninety five. Uh, yes, how much it cost. had a cover price of four ninety five, and I love one shots and double sized one shots. And GI Joe is such a good candidate for this because there are so many characters, and every writer in GI Joe history has had a challenge juggling. So many characters, too many characters, when compared against the readers, the fans' desire to see their favorite characters. Mm. You know, you have the sort of most popular characters, you know, the five or ten Joes and the five Cobras. And then you've got tiers and tiers of, you know, favorite characters, obscure characters, vehicle drivers. And so whether you call it special missions or not, uh, whether it is written and drawn by 
sort of the regular creative team of the ongoing book or not, uh, whether the stories in such a one-shot are um, self-contained, uh, lightly connect to the ongoing story, or very much connect to the ongoing story, this is a really good use of uh, the comic book format for something as sprawling as G.I. Joe. And I sure wish we would see some of this with, you know, modern G.I. Joe, the new the new continuation of Real American Hero at uh, at Skybound. From a business perspective, a publisher can sometimes reasonably argue against doing this because almost certainly a special issue, let's say it's the same cover price as a regular issue, is going to sell less. Although nowadays you get around that by calling it a, an issue number one, right? So we, th- you and I think of this as Special Missions Manhattan, but Devils do thinks of this as Special Missions Manhattan issue number one. Uh, and so actually maybe you can get more sales than, you know, issue 27 or 333. But if you think of, you know, Marvel and DC annuals in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s mold, those were, you know, yearly issues. They tended to be double sized. They were more expensive and they never sold as well because a lot of people just miss them, don't know about them. Uh, but from a story perspective, I am all for this. Very good. That's a, a very insightful point that, that when you've got that sort of regular book with, with that huge sprawling cast and, and in, at the moment in this chronology that, that the cast has been shrunk down to this core team and everyone's favourite characters uh, and, and you're not necessarily going to be featured. So, so having a book like this with some fan favourites like you know Mercer, Beachhead, Tunnel Rat, it's a great way of being able to have a book that spotlights some of those characters that would, wouldn't otherwise be, be used. And it also gives us a chance to sort of see a different writer's take and a different artist's take. So all around, I think it's a win, win, win. Yeah. Uh, I also enjoy how it feels holding a double-sized comic book. Mm. Just as an object. It's a little thicker, it's a little heavier, and 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 I personally can pay five bucks for a double-sized comic. Although, as I record this in 2023... comics are four dollars or five dollars and double-sized issues are now eight dollars or ten dollars so that's the sound of me tugging my collar yeah there's a there's a tipping point though isn't there tim for for you because you like a double-sized issue but you don't like a an omnibus edition that's too 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 big yeah i've uh i've actually uh, long ago realized that the if there's going to be an omnibus the sweet spot for me uh, is sort of the minimum omnibus of uh, 650 pages. And I'll go up to 800 pages. I would consider owning an 800-page Marvel omnibus. But once it gets beyond that, uh, it's too big. And this comes from a guy who gave the Civil War II omnibus to a friend as a present. And I think that was one of the 1,500-page ones, or the 11, the 11, anyway. <laughs> we're, get, we're getting distracted. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's talk about Jeju. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Let's have a look at the covers first, because this is the first thing we see. Tim, do you want to tell us what's going on on the on the cover and what you think? Uh, yeah. So um, uh, as is somewhat embedded in all of the America's Elite 
covers, you start to get a lot of different fonts. So let's mm. play. Th- let's play this game. Uh, <laughs> count the fonts. I'm counting uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven if you get in really small. So you're the font of all knowledge, Tim. Um, at the very top, in orange letters and italics, three stories, forty-eight pages, non-stop action. Uh, and then instead of saying G.I. Joe, America's Elite, it says G.I. Joe Special Missions. Special Missions takes the place of the America's Elite yellow letters in a black oh, bar yes. yeah. uh, with some stars. And then under it, it says Manhattan. And Manhattan is uh, sort of an old school, uh, low resolution, like digital computer monitor font. And it doesn't actually say Manhattan. It says dot, 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 Manhattan, dot, 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 which I take to mean some kind of communication or electronic readout, as if you were looking at a, like a ticker on the side yeah. of a building or as if we are a Joe looking at what, what are the what are the things on their wrists that go back to the beginning of the Devil's Do Run? Uh, their little I commun- can't remember what they called them. Yeah, the communicators. Communicators, yeah. and also I've been looking at um, Yo Joe and 3D Joes recently at at action figures, and uh, it's around this point that some of the action figures start having little things on their wrists that some of their weapons can stick on or in. I think. Anyway, I- I'm actually not concerned that this cover has so many fonts. I'm a little concerned from a design perspective that the top third of the cover isn't just like G.I. Joe, but like words, other words, title, more words, subtitle. And it gets a little busy. <laughs> but the good news is that the imagery itself isn't too busy. And artist Jeremy Hahn does in the top, I'd say uh, the top sort of sixth of the cover, create a block of negative space. The camera is like, one foot off the ground and it's looking up at beachhead and covergirl who are both sort of sitting hiding behind a uh like a ledge and i don't i don't think they're on the ground i think they may maybe sort of halfway up a building but uh behind the actual gi joe logo is some dark gray which is a little bit of a sort of an overhang so we're slightly under something uh looking at them i really like their body language I like their poses. I like that they're holding weapons. I like that there are uh, bullets flying by. Um, I like that the creators on the on the book are credited on the cover. I don't love the coloring. There's both a lot of white added to some of these colors, that green on Beachhead and also all of his sort of black, like his pouches and his boots. It's all very pasty. And then at the same time, sort of the the browns and the gray the browns of their clothing and the grays of the backgrounds seem to have a lot of black added so pretty muddy uh so not my cup of tea for coloring at all and that coloring continues through the lead story but this cover feels like a marvel cover from you know issues you know 30 to 80 and it's always exciting when the joes are pinned down and you can worry about them as opposed to the opposite of this, where Joes might be sort of running at you and blasting away, like the cover to issue one or the cover to issue 45, you know, Mike Zek with Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow bursting through the doorway or upcoming Andy Kubert's cover to 301. Um, Here I'm worried about these two Joes. And this cover asks a slight question, which is, who is shooting at them? Indeed. 
There's a second cover, which is a black and white NYCC exclusive cover, which seems to be using uh, the artist Jeremy Hound's pinups for three of the main characters, Beachhead, Covergirl and Tunnel Rat. And I see that a couple of these are in the collection, the original art this is, are in the collection of Friend of the Show, uh, Shane Simic's uh, Comic Art Fans Gallery. Hello, hello, Shane. When you say pinups, you mean the uh, the data desk profile pages in the issue. Are they? Yes, they are. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's funny because this B cover, this New York Comic Con exclusive cover, it's it is more striking because it is black and white, and Jeremy Hahn's art works really well in black and white. He's inking in an old school style where he's using a lot of spotted black ink. So uh, the, sh- the shading in Covergirl's hair, her pants, uh, half of her torso, Tunnel Rat's rear leg, uh, and, and some other bits here and there. At the same time, and there's no background, so these three characters really pop. At the same time, this cover gets really busy really fast because there are all these different words and fonts on the top, and then there are all these different words and logos. The Devil's Dude logo, the New York Comic Con logo, the Pets uh, logo at the bottom. Uh, I, I don't blame anyone for sort of overloading this underloaded cover. Uh, it just makes it makes for an interesting contrast. Uh, I will say I don't like in any instance interior art being used, reused as cover art. I don't like it when publishers nowadays do it for second printings. They'll take like a splash page from the issue or the big reveal on the last page and they'll run that as the cover. I don't like it when, in this case, it's sort of pinup art, even though these three characters have been um, collaged uh, together. And that's for two reasons. One, cover art and cover artists, when they're really good, they are they are thinking in a different way to grab your attention and to really make a statement with one image. And interior art, uh, I guess the, the exception if it's if if it's a splash page, right? Uh, which often does get used um, for reprint covers. But interior art is, you know, more about continuity and storytelling and moments. So even in the hands of a good designer who's reusing some interior art, I don't think it's sort of intended to be the cover. And then also from a reader perspective, I find there's a a lot less value. You know, if I missed some exciting new issue in the last couple of years, but there's a second printing coming, I'll think, oh, good, I can still read it. And then if I get it, and the cover is some like reused image from inside. It's like, well, didn't they hire some expensive artist to do the radical first printing cover? And I don't get that, you know? And also if there's some like big spoiler that they're now just putting on the cover because it's already been spoiled and now they're just trying to get like anyone to pick it up. Well, from a marketing perspective, they're doing their job. I picked it up. But as a as a reader, it's not something I want to take home and own. It's a lot less special. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know, like buying a DVD without the sleeve, you know? I, that, I mean, that, that would be like buying a comic book with the cover ripped off. But I feel like a cover is too important to, to treat less carefully. Mm-hmm. And the, I guess a cool thing about this one is that uh, it is Special Missions Manhattan, and this was an NYCC exclusive. So it's kind of got that 
that nice correlation of geography to uh, to title. Yeah, so this was 2006. Uh, I think I went to that New York Comic Con. I mean, you know, if if we're going to go a step further, wouldn't it be great if these three Joes were, you know, defending the Javits Center where New York Comic Con <laughs> takes place? But you know, you you gotta you gotta prep these things quickly, and there may not be much of a budget. You know, a variant cover like this, I don't know, they're going to print uh, a thousand copies, and you know, it's like what's what's easiest to do a month before the convention? You know, reuse some art. As opposed yeah. to, like, someone look up how the Javits Center is shaped. Oh, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of glass. <laughs> okay, so the first story in this is the the yeah, the headline story: special mission, special missions, Manhattan. Can we can we talk just for a moment about the inside front cover? If you pick up this comic, you see these two Joes on the cover, and you turn the page, and the inside front cover is those headshots of all the Joes that are the regular characters in the main book, and. Uh, they've got their names and code names and specialties, and then each one for their status in red it says on assignment. And so, what's happening here is the inside front cover is alluding to what's happening in the regular monthly book, right? No, this is the Joe Casey series, which has the small core cast of favorites, but they're not available for this story. So we're going to get everyone. We're, we're going to get characters who aren't them. Mm, indeed. So the main story is Special Missions Manhattan, writer B. Claymore. That sounds a bit like a, a code name, doesn't it? Claymore. Uh, very appropriate for G.I. Joe. Artist Jeremy Hounhorn. Uh, colorist Dave Bryant. Letterer Brian J. Crowley. And editor Mike O'Sullivan. So uh, very uh, a compacted plot briefing. A reserve team of Joes consisting of Beachhead, Covergirl, Lowlight, Mercer and Tunnel Rat are called to duty to assault a building in New York City. The building contains an old toxin that Cobra created that a terrorist group has gotten hold of. The small Joe team is successful in capturing Neurotoxin, a Cobra agent who was trying to get hold of the virus and ultimately find out that there was no virus and it was all an elaborate trap. Uh, thoughts on this one, Tim? A, a little talky, but mm. a great story. Um, this is this is one of my favorite kinds of G.I. Joe stories where Joes are making their way through an interior space, like a building. This reminds mm -hmm. me of issue, issue 95 of the original Marvel run, the Cobra Consulate building. Or, you know, a Cobra headquarters or, you know, the pit if something's gone wrong. It's great to see some old favorites like uh, Tunnel Rat and Mercer. Mercer is sort of under-decorated. Mm -hmm. This new Devil's Due costume for him. Uh, and this, this does not correspond to an action figure of that time, correct? Uh, correct. It's sort of, it's taking some of the cues from his V1, V2 but it's, it's it's its own thing. It's a little bit more sort of real world, a little bit more muted. Yeah, he's got one tiny splash of color. And if you if you hadn't told me this was Mercer, Mercer would not be my first guess. What I did think was quite cool is that is that he does have his um does have his suppressed pistol that he that his uh, V one figure came with or something very similar to it. Oh yeah. Um, so it's th those little touches and a nice a nice to do. Nice to have. 
I thought that uh, interestingly, this issue uh, uses a a new action figure uh, from the the GI Joe action figure line of the day, and one of the sort of um, ideas we've gone back to is how much do the Devils Do comics specifically use new vehicles and new figure designs? Uh, somewhat, but they're not primary, right? The mm-hmm. you know the the Devils Do comics, both Blaylock and Jurawa and other writers are much more interested in telling a story or telling a continuation of the Marvel story. And this is very much uh, an advertisement for a new action figure. New toys! Just to draw that out, the new character we're talking here is Neurotoxin, who was described as a toy as the Cobra Sand Scorpion leader slash elite desert trooper. He was released as part of... The Venom versus Valor line in 2004 carded in a two-pack with Razor Trooper. And um, his file card there talks more about him being, I guess, that Cobra Sand Scorpion and not really referencing too much that name. So so Devil's Due has sort of taken that name as inspiration, Neurotoxin, and, and sort of running with it a little bit further than the file card suggests in terms of you know someone who's into all of these potential you know hazmat materials. Uh, yes. Uh, Jeremy Hahn draws great uh, eyes on page one, two, three, four. I'm skipping the ad. Five. The bottom of five, there's a close up of Beachhead and just, you know, the or- the actual orbits, creases, eyebrows, bridge in the nose. Very handsome. And I have I have picked on a G.I. Joe artist who does great work, who I don't think draws great eyes. So here's a contrast. Han's work is not the most dynamic overall, and this story doesn't give him a lot of chances to to sort of show that off if he if he was pushing in that direction. Um, there are some um, action moments um, and a little bit of gunplay, but there's a lot of sort of standing around, like standing in sort of a tense soldier at the ready with a weapon pose. Uh, and a little bit of sitting. And I do think that he has a little bit of a weakness when it comes to making sort of interesting backgrounds in terms of an environment. And and my example is on page 13, where we are, we are looking through a uh, diagonal like air vent. Uh, it sort of looks like we're looking through a chain link fence. And it's it's the first time that we've seen the the bad guy terrorists where it it's these it's these nameless bad guys who've taken over the lab it's not this one sp- specific cobra and there's a word balloon that says i have a visual on the extremists the ex- extremists uh and then we see one two three four five six seven seven guys standing around some of them holding weapons and they're all sort of at the ready and uh there's no there's no background here and i don't know what kind of room they're inside and I thought that they were in a lab, and I thought that this would be an interesting space. You know, you think of every time in the cartoon, in the G.I. Joe cartoon, we see a Cobra lab. You know, there are all these interesting shapes, you know, like sections of wall and monitors and buttons and vials and sort of raised sections. Or you think of in in comic books, you know, like a who are the, who are the villains? Uh, AIM or HYDRA, you know, like a, a villain 
base. And uh, there, there is a line here to separate where the, I guess the floor becomes the wall or sort of a color line where the wall becomes the ceiling. And I don't, I don't need to pick unduly on this one panel. And, and you know, again, like more doesn't give Han a ton to work with because this story is mostly just Joe's walking down hallways and going through doorways and occasionally going upstairs. But I do find the actual sort of like styling and population of this, this, this office building to be not too exciting. A little bit minimalist, a little bit lacking in some of the dynamic backgrounds. I can see, I can see that you can, you picked on that one particular panel, but it could have been, could have been almost any, any of them. I got big diehard vibes from, from this one that uh, is that, that sort of, uh, you're up against terrorists in a sort of office tower block, making your way through the various floors. And there's uh, there's one bit where Mercer ties uh, ties something around his middle and sort of jumps out of a window to to get down to onto another floor, which uh, very much echoed uh, Die Hard, uh, where I think he uses a um like a fire hose type thing to to rappel down uh, through through some floors. So I just thought I'd note I'd note that similarity <laughs> for the record. Yeah, there's there's a there's a it's sort of half joke and half real. After the film Die Hard was released, other movies came along where you could describe it as Die Hard blank blank, right? So under Die siege, Hard on a yeah on a boat yeah on a un, train under yeah. under siege is Die Hard on a train. Uh, under siege two is Die Hard in a submarine, and you know Die Hard. Two is Die Hard in an airport, and Die Hard Three is Die Hard in New York City, and uh, GI Joe Special Missions Manhattan is a little bit of Die Hard in a GI Joe comic, um, <laughs> but I but I don't I don't think of this as unoriginal or sort of unfairly swiping. I think of it as a good concept, and then there is this one uh, Die Hard reference. But I also feel like if you're gonna have a GI Joe story in a building. In a universe where the Die Hard movie never happened, I feel like there's a pretty good chance that a GI that a GI Joe writer in a story where they're, you know, a building's been taken over, I feel like someone might go out a window and swing into a lower floor. So I again, I don't feel like this is sort of unfairly uh, or lazily uh, cribbing from or sort of um, homaging uh, uh, Die Hard. Okay, so there are a couple character dynamics that I wanted to point out and get your reaction to. So mm. Mercer's being a little bit of a nudge when it comes to <laughs> CoverGirl. Uh, he makes two references to her being uh, her former career as a model, uh, as if she's um, so attractive or distracting that she can sort of do the less interesting part of this uh, mission or she can just distract the villains and that sh maybe she's not a fully fledged soldier like they are and you know mercer never showed up in the uh larry hama gi joe comic and you know he he almost steals the show in uh gi joe that the animated movie and devil's do has used him before so these these first of two uh character sort of ticks i wanted to get your reaction how do you feel about mercer being a a jerk and a cover girl pushing back yeah i mean you know cover girl's been a joe and a soldier long enough that you know you'd feel she's kind of paid her dues but mercer we don't know very much about we've only seen him really in passing in the devil's due 
uh, comic in a in a couple of occasions, and you know maybe maybe let's sort of try and explain this from a storytelling perspective. Maybe he is a bit of a jerk. Maybe he's a bit of a misogynist, and you know he did he did join Cobra after all. So maybe he you know he's not all good. But having come to Joe late and not spent much time in that core team, maybe he's not spent a huge amount of time um, with uh, with Covergirl. And this is his almost his kind of initial reaction, and he's I don't know maybe maybe he he's maybe he's uncomfortable, maybe he's projecting uh, his uncomfortability in in sort of the presence of uh, of, of Covergirl, and he's sort of uh, negging, as you might say. Um, my my second character interaction of note is on page fifteen. Tunnel Rat has, over the radio, gotten the cue to turn off the lights. He turns off the lights, and the three Joes enter a room, and Low Light takes out the bad guys. And there's a there's an all-black panel, and there's a word balloon that must be Beachhead saying, Tunnel Rat, bring them up! And then over the radio, Tunnel Rat says, That better, sweetheart? And then Beachhead says, Don't you call me, sweetheart. And uh, I'm sorry if this was your, uh, your uh, I spy, but uh, this is a reference to G.I. Joe the movie, the animated movie from 1987, where Beachhead has uh, the rawhides, quote unquote. That's the name for these five or six new recruits that he's putting through their paces. And he, he wants them to stand at attention with their backs straight and their chests out. And uh, Tunnel Rat has some attitude and he says, that better, sweetheart. And then so uh, Beachhead's a real uh, tough ass uh, in that scene. And it's great. I want a stone cold righteous attention. Your chin is down. Your chest out. Your gut in. Your face mean. Cause you are rough, tough, fighting machines. That better, sweetheart? Don't you call me sweetheart. And I don't love the comic making a reference to the animated movie. I understand that Devil's Deuce storyline is a continuation of the marvel comic with some elements from the cartoon and i don't know what the percentage is it's not it's not 50 50 it's i feel like 70 percent marvel 10 percent some completely new thing that devil's do is going to do and like 20 percent uh from the cartoon you know tom x and zamod and extensive enterprises and but i don't understand why in this moment tunnel rat is sort of cute or jokey like, there's no reason for him to say that better, sweetheart. You know, it's like, Mark, if you said to me right now, like, oh, uh, Tim, your levels are kind of low. And I'm like, all right, let me turn them up. That better, sweetheart. It's like, well, did you just piss me off? Like, no, you just <laughs> asked me to do something. So like, you know, Beachhead didn't say like, Tunnel Rat, you'd better turn the lights back on when I say, unlike the last mission, oh, Tunnel Rat, what a jerk and a terrible soldier you are. It's like, no, he says... He says, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need you to turn the lights out and then turn them back on. And that's the previous page. So, um, one, I think the reference to the movie is overly cute and distracting. So I don't like it. And two, it's not earned. So it's mm. distracting. It's like, why are they being cute and snippy at each other? So no, thanks. Yeah. I don't know if this makes any more sense, but when I was, cause, cause I don't think it necessarily does, but when I was reading it, I imagined that it might've been cover girl that said that uh, tunnel rat, bring him back up. 
that better, sweetheart? And of course, he's talking to, to everybody on the thing. And then, except that the word balloon is on the left. And right. in the right, next, right. In the next mm. panel, Beachhead's on the left. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, and then, um, and then there, there's a slight thing in this same actual panel that I, that I didn't like, where uh, there are two panels that are all black or almost all black in a row. And this is again, page 15. Um, there are a bunch of sound effects, pock, 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 the sound of a Joe picking off these uh, terrorists. And it turns out to be low light. And then there's the second all black panel. And then the lights come back on. And these three Joes are in sort of firing stance, right? They're ready to, to shoot. And low light is front and center and kneeling. The other two Joes are behind him standing. And then there's a reverse angle, which is basically low light's point of view. And we can now see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight dead terrorists, right? And CoverGirl says, whoa. And then in the final panel of the page, she says, good work, Lowlight. And I appreciate that she's complimenting her very capable teammates' highly tuned skills. But I don't understand that, whoa. Like, he's wearing night vision goggles. This is what he does. And this isn't their first mission together, and it's not her first mission. And this is this is sort of a small thing. This doesn't ruin the comic for me, but it does stick out a little bit. And I feel like a different writer would have just cut the woe and had her say, good work, low light, or change the woe so that it can indicate something like, whoa, there were more of these guys than I thought, or whoa, these guys were closer to pressing the detonate button than I thought. But without any other context, I just read this as her reacting to, whoa, low light, you're so good at your job. It's like, yes, he's the he's literally the best <laughs> of the best. He's on a team with 100 other people and they are the best at this there is. So that word is not necessary. Mm. Generally, I liked this issue. There was one point and it's a point about this this story, but more generally about similar types of endings to to these types of stories where what we find is that there was never actually a real terrorist threat uh it was an elaborate plan to to draw someone out and capture them and the joes just never knew about it you know there's been various other examples in in the marvel run i'm thinking like special missions number eight which actually included Lowlight's probably biggest appearance where they were on a mission to to take out somebody and in the end uh he instead of shooting him he took it just took his uh his briefcase full of chips and this particular bit the frustrating point for me was that um it was this this trap um to to draw out the the cobras but then the joes were sort of kept in the dark for no reason and also they reacted to it as an emergency drawing out these reserves who just happen to be locally there again for for no reason and you know while they're the, you know the best of the best and they handled it very capably putting them in harm's way for again no reason you know if it was an elaborate sting surely they could have handled it in a different way so the, the majority of the comic worked well for me and i enjoyed it but just that last little bit just seemed a bit uh frustrating for me you know if you are going to sort of have an elaborate sting try and get those cobras why not just have everything set up ready to 
to do it. I see your point. Uh, I haven't read any stories recently where the Joes get the short end of the stick at the end and it's a surprise. And so this one felt like uh, sort of in keeping with that rather than sort of maybe doing it one time too many or sort of incorrectly measuring uh, the stakes where the, so I, so I did like the ending because the Joes often get the short end of the stick where the final page is a little flat for me is in Han's art and storytelling where the first two panels are comps. The first panel is drawn and then the second panel is sort of a comp of the second panel, like a photocopy, except two or three little things have been changed. And I don't love that. But also if you just look at the final page sort of overall, like, yes, they're all just standing in this room, this sort of clean room or debriefing room or waiting room. And Maybe there shouldn't be anything exciting about it because it's a it's a waiting room. They're not in the main Joe headquarters by the giant monitor. They're not in, you know, some lab or or tech facility. Um, but you know, I just look at the first two panels and I barely see any color. Right. So this is also a comment about color, right? It's just sort of like dark gray brown, dark gray brown, dark gray dark gray brown, dark gray brown, dark gray brown. <laughs> And the sort of non-background color. And then it happens again for the second panel. And then for the third panel, uh, the camera pulls back. And On does some good, good body language uh, throughout this issue. I find I find his his poses as an, and his art a tiny bit stiff. But I appreciate how much he's doing photo reference and acting. So I don't mind the stiffness. Like this is not, you know, the like Jack Kirby or John Buscema like violent football player ballet of how characters contort through space. This is definitely not that. This is this is coming from a different place. And for G.I. Joe, it's it's totally appropriate. But sort of this like triple whammy of these final three panels where you're getting this like wah wah on the Joes. Like, sorry Joes, you got used, but they're just standing there and there's sort of no background. So from a visual that, you know, this final page is like, it's, it's no feast, you know, it's like, it's like a cracker on a plastic plate, you know, um, <laughs> and a, Chris, in, a Christmas cracker joke at the end as well, I guess that it's ending on them laughing, which is it's sort of a bit of a Saturday morning cartoon trope in itself, isn't it? So well, like okay. The, He-Man. The, Thundercats. Sort the, uh, the, the reason lends why it, lends it on a laugh. The reason why this doesn't hit me in that way is because I often think of the camera pulling back in a Thundercats or Heman finale and sort of everyone laughing and it being forced. And this is this is one Joe saying "ha," so <laughs> it's actually not at that level. I can see how it might remind you of that. So I I like this story. And hey, you know another another obscure Joe shows up uh, in the form of airtight. Right. Yeah. I thought you were about to say someone else, but yeah, an, another outing for... Although, um, actually, wait, who's the guy in the orange hazmat suit on the third to last page? Uh, I think that must be a g- generic oh, okay. person. Okay. Because uh, if it's... <laughs> everyone, remember the rule of threes. If it's one, you think it's a specific person. If it's two, it sort of draws attention to itself because there's symmetry, like the bottom panel of that page, the two, I guess, green shirts, the blonde guy and the brown haired guy who are opening the doors, but also holding their machine guns awfully casually. 
Uh, <laughs> considering we're inside, geez. Actually, that reminds me of the first episode of G.I. Joe, which I just rewatched, where uh, Major Juanita Hooper chastises the Joes inside a base, and she says, and put your weapon, or, and leave your weapons outside. This isn't a combat mission, for pity's sake. Um, but you have this guy in orange, actually, who looks exactly like an orange hazmat suit Playmobil figure that my wife bought. <laughs> If you had one, you think it's a person specifically. If you had two, it draws attention to itself because it's like two guards. If you have three, then it's like, oh, well, the Joes are, you know, hanging yeah. out with some hazmat guys. But speaking of casual, the Joes there sort of sat on this <laughs> in this waiting room with this one guy in a hazmat suit and, and the, the, the enemy Cobra sort of tied up, sat on a sofa and they're all just sort of, you know, clutching on their, their cups of coffee, having a post-mission uh, brew. But um, having at that point th- thinking that they've been exposed to a deadly toxin and are probably going to die any minute soon, um, quite chilled, quite relaxed. Yeah. My my objection, I've I've just you know had a thought about that, and I think the the probably there just needs to be a small tweak, and my objection would have gone. And I think my rewrite would be would be something like Stalker coming in and saying. We had this mission all set up, ready and waiting to to deal with the Cobras, but unfortunately, the team was called away on another mi- another urgent mission, and when trouble struck, we weren't here, so I had to call in the reserves, something like that, hmm. rather than yeah, I, I think that I think that would kind of that would you know, right away my my niggles on that particular problem. You mentioned that there was a an appearance of a r- rare Joe, and and then said it was airtight. I thought you were going to say Sparks. Oh, yeah. Um, have we? I think we've seen Sparks a few times in Devil's Do. Have we? I don't know. Maybe. Um, uh, I looked it up because I wasn't sure. And uh, according to the site that I looked at, this appears to be his first appearance in a comic. Oh. G.I. Joe Special Missions Manhattan. Okay. Uh, G.I. Joe America's Elite credited first appearance is issue 11. He also appears in G.I. Joe Declassified and Scarlet Declassified. So, yeah, he's, 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 I think it appears to be just around about this time that he starts appearing as a G.I. Joe team member. It might be I'm misremembering and he has appeared before. Certainly, I've seen a fair few comics with him now, but like sort of, you know, remembering the order that, that you read them versus the order that they came out, it's not always completely clear. Um, I, so- I would, uh, I would, I would defer to you. Um, that this is indeed his first comics appearance. We sh- we should note for listeners who um, more buy the toys or read the comics and don't watch the cartoon that sort of his inclusion. Let's let's assume that this is his first appearance in comics. Uh, while I do this talking, maybe you can look up when his first action figure is. So listeners, uh, Sparks is a a funny sort of GI Joe character because he shows up in four episodes of the Marvel Sunbow cartoon in 84 and uh, 86. And he seems to be a made up character for the GI Joe cartoon. And it's, it was, it was confusing to me because he does what breaker does in the 1983 episodes, right? He's the Joe's communications officer. He's the guy who's sitting at the, the big mm-hmm. computer when Cobra Commander, it happens in the first miniseries, and I think it happens in the second miniseries and probably the third, uh, when Cobra Commander takes over the airwaves and and threatens the nations of the world with, you know, his newest um, five-part MacGuffin. Um, and 
if I had to guess, and I, I haven't done any inquiring uh, with people who worked on the show in my book research, but you know, Breaker as an action figure is 82, 83. He's phased out in 84. And and there there really were memos from Sunbow to Sunbow and Marvel reminding the writers when certain characters or vehicles were phased out. Like, don't use this character or vehicle anymore, or try not to use this character or vehicle anymore. That's an old toy. We're not pushing them anymore. And in a lot of cases, you just swap someone else in. But, uh, and I don't know if uh, there was some hope that maybe, you know, Sparks would become an action figure, or if, like, Admiral Ledger in the animated show, he's just a character that, you know, writer Ron Friedman created for the show because he needed a few additional characters to fill out because mm-hmm. the, you know, first 30 Joe characters can't do everything that the story demands of them. But mm-hmm. just again, to say it in a sentence, um, he had not basically, he hadn't had an action figure uh, and he hadn't been, he hadn't been a proper Joe. He's, you know, we think of characters like Cool Breeze or Quinn who are, or, or Dr. Venom who are created just for the comic book. And we tend not to think about the characters who are created just for the show. And he is one of them. So tell us, did he get a figure much later? Yeah, he got a, a figure uh, in 2007 as Alex, uh, inverted commas, Sparks Verdi, communications expert. He was the 2007 International G.I. Joe Convention Tanks for the Memories box set from the G.I. Joe Collectors Club, and that appears to be his only only official release. I'm aware that Black Major is producing a, uh, a sort of a 1982-style figure, I guess, sort of um, trying to tap into the demand for, uh, for you know, a an authentic looking uh, original, you know, version of that. But yeah, surprisingly, it looks like he's only had one official release. And this action figure that that did come out uh, as a convention exclusive in two thousand seven is it's an O ring figure made up of basic, you know, a basic shirt, tunic, basic pants. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, only kind of matches uh, the animation model sheet. You know, it's a yeah. white guy. They didn't. He didn't suddenly grow a beard or lose a beard. <laughs> but you know, he he doesn't have the right sort of arrangement of elements on his shirt uh, or his uh, his pants. And the colors are pretty close. But uh, so sort of a sort of an Easter egg Joe. Mm. Indeed. I spy with my little eye. Um, I had an I spy just for this story, which was that I think this might be the first story where uh, Tunnel Rat is shown featuring sort of red infrared style goggles. There were goggles included in a previous story and uh, the 2004 figure, but those look to be clear. But uh, more and more after this story... When, when we see Tunnel Rat, he, he more frequently appears with these sort of red goggles, which becomes a little bit more canonical, is that the right word? Yeah. To his uh, his character, to the extent that um, the new classified uh, Tunnel Rat figure uh, comes with those red goggles. Uh, this isn't quite an I spy. I think, I think this, is, this is just a coincidence. But uh, 
Uh, Mercer on page seven looks like Josh Blaylock. <laughs> um, I have a I have a big eye spy. Can I do the big eye spy for page oh, right. page nine? Oh, of course. Um, I I just wrote this down and and then forgot to, to say it. Where did I write? It? Yes, go on. Say your um. So uh, the Joes get on this elevator and uh, the elevator uh, stops uh, too soon. And this is one of those things in comics where you might need someone to say it because it's actually hard to just draw it. And the door opens and there is an old man with white hair and glasses and a big white mustache and sort of a bedraggled, untucked button up shirt and suspenders and a janitor's uh, pushcart with uh, a squeegee and a broom. And someone says, hold it. And he says, um, janitorial staff, but let me do the voice you might recognize from this <laughs> Sunbow Marvel episode. Uh, janitorial staff. And then Coverill says something funny and the Joes continue on their mission. He's shocked because they have guns. And then he says, man, I got to get back on days as in, I, I don't want to do the overnight shift anymore. And it is the Viper from mm-hmm. the, uh, I don't remember if it's 85 or 86 episode. The Viper is coming. Uh, wherein the Joes keep getting phone calls from a mysterious uh, voice character who says, I am the Viper. And then he gives them numbers and they go after Cobra. And the episode ends on a joke where they all the Joes have uh, set up all their equipment because they're expecting this attack from this mysterious. Oh, it's got to be 85 because this is before 86 when there is an action figure named Viper, the Viper, the Mm. Cobra Vipers. So it's an 85 episode. And the joke at the end is that this old man shows up with a little push card and he says, I am the Viper. I've come to vipe your windows. And and then the camera pulls back. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, classic movie fans. Uh, I believe this is a joke that's uh, borrowed from a, I forget, like a, like a Marx Brothers routine or something. Uh, I don't think this joke was invented for this (laughs) Marvel Sunbow episode of G.I. Joe, but it was used to great effect across 22 minutes. So, uh, all right, so cute, cute animation reference there, which actually sort of doesn't bother me the way that the um, Tunnel Rat Beachhead Sweetheart Exchange um, does, but I could also live without it. You know, I I don't need any G.I. Joe writer to sort of nudge me in the ribs with their elbow and say, see, see, remember the thing? Like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a big G.I. Joe fan. I remember the thing. It's like, no, no, I like might watch that episode next week. Like you remind, it's like in, um, it's like in Rise of Cobra, the live action film, when the Joes are briefing and Hawk explains the plan and who is it? Duke? Duke says, Ripcord says, now we know. And then Hawks at Dennis Quaid says, and knowing is half the battle. It's like, no, thanks. I don't need that. That's just like, it's like the movie like got paused for a moment and director Stephen Summers like steps out in front of the actors and is like talking to the camera. It's like, hey, everyone, remember the cartoon? I do too. So I'm okay seeing the the, uh, the Viper, but I'm also... I guess I'd prefer it if it wasn't there, but this isn't points off. Yeah, it's it's also it's sort of a button that they've pressed before that we've we've the sort of homages to that Viper character have kind of cropped up in Devil's Due already to this point. So it's like, oh right, he's in, isn't he in the background in like what is it, Devil's Due seventeen? It's like when the when the Joes are on that bar. 
Yeah, when they're in the bar. Yeah, he's one of the background characters there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like, is, I think this is a different editor by this point. So, or maybe not. Like, this is the kind of thing that an editor might catch and say, like, okay, B. Claymore. Uh, like, thanks. Maybe don't do this. You know, we haven't mentioned, uh, I just wanted to say two quick things. Uh, uh, B. Claymore, I, I think this is his first uh, G.I. Joe story. His his writing in comics I have not read before, but he is known f- for a creator-owned series called Hawaiian Dick, and he had previously collaborated with Jeremy Hahn um, oh. at Image and Oni on a, a series called Battle Him and another series called The Leading Man. And B. Clay Moore has done a little bit of work for uh, for DC here and there and some other um, publishers, and Jeremy Hahn. Uh, the first time I was aware of his work was during Marvel's Civil War in 2006. So after? Yeah, about six months after this G.I. Joe story comes out, um, he drew a an Iron Man Captain America special, which I thought was kind of bad at the time, which was sort of halfway through uh, Civil War, Iron Man and Captain America, like, have a talk and they kind of end up arguing and fighting. And this felt mm. like a, like a cash in, like, Oh, the story is going to be over in three months. Let's make some additional comics to like fill out the story. Cause we can make money. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of story to tell, but I bought it cause I was buying a lot of civil war at the time. And I remember thinking that Jeremy Hahn's art was quite clean, but too stiff for superhero dynamics particularly compared against the more dynamic uh, cover on that Civil War special by another artist. So uh, those are those are my final thoughts on um, on uh, the lead on story, the lead story. In, in Special Missions. Uh, the, the next and... next page over, we've got uh, the res- a res- list of reserves. So it's like specialities and then a list of various uh, Joes there. I think that whenever someone tries to create a list like this, it I'm sure it takes quite a long time to, to put together and uh, and then probably gets a load of letters back saying, you got that bit wrong. What about this character? You've, you know, you've included this person and they're dead or, you know, you've inc- you've got a list of dead people and you've forgotten about this character. I love this list. What I say is it's good value for money putting in the things like this because, you know, you can flick over a, a single page in a comic book and narrative page within a few seconds that one like this gives you an opportunity to just pour over it for for ages yes um it also even though it and again this is designed in the america's elite data desk styling where it's mm-hmm. it's blue and green and red font sort of a like a blocky digital font on a gray background as if we're looking at a computer screen and then devil's do issues have been using this look now for several issues but even though on the top it says reserves, it does include all the active Joes. So those are the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Uh, oh, I guess Sparks is an advisor. The ten active Joes, the one advisor, and then all these others are are reserves. And it's really fun because sometimes I sort of forget what a particular Joe does because uh, I haven't memorized all the file cards and a list like this reminds me. I'd like this for two more reasons. One, it includes the two places where a G.I. Joe codename was reused. So there's 
uh, Airborne, last name Talltree, and Airborne, last name Six. So that's the original, huh. that's the early Joe who's in some episodes of the show and some early Marvel issues. And then also the Airborne who shows up in Sky Patrol. And then also in the fourth column, it includes the two long ranges, uh, one of whom must be the driver of the Thunderclap and the other of whom, I don't know who that is, but I know that there was some <laughs> like naming um glit- glitches you know in the 2000s because of copyright stuff yeah they had a sigma six long range i believe who was like a guy with like i think he had like a long trench coat and i think he had was like a sniper or something okay like, like uh that. maybe maybe you want to maybe while i uh say this next sentence you want to you want to google that and see if that guy's last name is fritz or garcia um there is a list of deceased joes which makes me a little sad but i also find helpful because it it's a good reminder of sort of why I haven't seen someone in a while. Uh, and okay, so Hama killed some guys in the Marvel run and Jurwa killed some guys in his run. And I forget, maybe Blaylock killed one or two. Oh, and there are two sneak peeks in the deceased list. Two last names there. But also the second to last category before deceased is training drill instruction and uh, Captain Gridiron, Fridge, mm-hmm. uh, Hollow Point. I don't know who that is. And Sergeant Slaughter. So uh, also somewhere in the list is um, uh, Super Soldier. So I appreciate the... Um, oh, and Sergeant Savage. Sergeant Savage is listed in... And so is Big Lob. Wow, this... Uh, huh, this, this uh, introduces a lot of... Oh, and they're two... And they're two... And they're two... They're two Dusties, because I guess... It, anyway, so uh, fascinating list. Probably f- filled with not mistakes, but... Um, things worth arguing and then you turn the page and there are eight pages of character profiles and that's cool because these eight characters were just in this story but i would much rather eight more pages of comics so thank you but no thank you but uh, I'll, i'll repeat again i think good value for money in terms of you know big blocks of text lots of stuff to to uh, wade through and some you know some additional art uh long range you've we've got long range v1 who is carl w fritz and he is the thunderclap driver you then had long range version two who is alejandro garcia who is the driver of the rocc rolling operations command center 2005 and then you had a uh, long range sniper which is the sigma six marksman with the coat and the sharp sideburns Hmm. uh cool a couple of the things that i noticed on that that reserves list was yeah there's quite a lot of names there that, that have never actually featured in the in the comic before so it's like you're kind of introducing them to the team and saying they're part of that universe without them ever actually appearing there before which is is slightly odd but you know it's comprehensive uh you had action man on covert ops who it was hinted was the same person as tracker who was also who features on the de- deceased because uh you know they had the same figure I also noticed under animal handling, there was uh, Mutt, no no law, he's probably somewhere else. You've had Dr. Talbot, who I had to look up and remind myself, that stands for uh, Link, Dr. Link Talbot, who is, his speciality is combat veterinarian. And uh, 
I believe that he had a big part to play in the uh, Venom versus Valor. I believe it was. Yeah, because because Cobra's mixing soldiers with DNA, and the Joes have animals. Uh, and we haven't seen Ice Cream Soldier in any comics, right? Or was he in one True. panel? No. Was he in one panel? <laughs> maybe, maybe Devil's in a background Doom? panel somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On these data desk uh, handbook entries. I found my my sort of favorite piece of dialogue. It's not really dialogue, but uh, <laughs> it's some words on Beachhead. It said, though Beachhead constantly gains respect from all that he encounters, he'll demand it before you have a chance to offer it. <laughs> uh, we should point out that these data desk handbook pages are written by Sam Wells and Mike O'Sullivan. That's the credit from the inside front cover of the issue. And the art for this first batch is uh, Jeremy Hahn and Dave Bryant, uh, just like the story that we have just read. And that leads us to the next story. Brothers Keeper, written by Mike O'Sullivan, artist Tim Seeley, colorist John Rausch, letterer Brian J. Crowley. So an overview in order to even the score between brothers, Blackout, a.k.a. Thomas Stall, killed several Cobra agents that were planning on capturing a commercial airline that his brother, Barrel Roll, a.k.a. Dwight Stall, is flying. Yeah, short and sweet. It's only, what, one, five two, pages. three, four, five, five pages, of which mostly silent for the first three. Yeah. And uh, reveals that uh, Barrel Roll, Dwight Stahl, uh, a Joe that we saw in an earlier Devil's Do couple of issues, is now a commercial airline pilot. So with mm. the the switch from the main Devil's Do book to the Joe Casey America's Elite, most of the Joe team was put on reserves and they you know went to or back to their civilian lives or their day jobs. And barrel roll he's he's on the cover to ah, the devils do 31 27 something like that where it's just a guy in blue and gray flying up toward you away from an atoll and he's got a helmet on that's got a little bit of red detailing to sort of look like he's a cobra isn't that mm-hmm. yeah that, that's barrel roll in his spy troops gear that's right um so i thought this story in terms of writing was quite good and a very good use of just a few pages right yeah. it's, it's only five pages and many people cannot pull off a satisfying comic in five pages yeah uh, particularly with so uh a uh, little dialogue but i think the art is just sort of eh, and the coloring uh i think this coloring might look good on a computer monitor but man i don't think this coloring looks good printed on the comic that I'm holding because the first page, it doesn't feel like the story was inked. It feels like it's, I think actually the whole story. uh, I think the whole story uh, is pencils only. And so you have a couple places where I think the colorist is like filling something in completely black, like the silhouette guy on the third panel of the first page. The third panel of the whole story, right? Guy looking behind maroon curtain. And that works there. But then on the next panel, 
where blonde guy who looks like Duke is dragging someone into a <laughs> remarkably large uh, lavatory. It's like nothing. If you think of a, of a scale of one to ten, if one is your brightest white and ten is black, right? An even value structure is going to have things in like in the low numbers, like one, two, three. Things in the middle, four, five, six, and things in the darks, like seven, eight, nine, ten. And this, I've talked about this before, and I think the the big comparison was in in previous stories that were pencils only and then colored aggressively in a modern computer style. style. I think the comparison then was um, Extreme X-Men, that comic from like 2000 that was drawn by Salvador LaRocca and colored by Liquid at Marvel, which was pencils only. And then on the one, two, three, four, five, fifth panel of this first page, that silhouette behind the two flight attendants it reads sort of as a person who's all shaded out walking by. It also just sort of reads like a hole, like a hole in space, like a hole in my comic page, because yeah, yeah. that's you, what you in a panel like this, you have like one, two, three, four, five, six, ten. You don't have any like darker darks or you don't have any darker darks that are being properly. What's the word like anchored together? So the panel starts to like break up into its constituent parts. So I think some of the coloring here is sort of handsome. I think some of it's like overly nudely, but the coloring for the the coloring and the art are at odds with each other. And I, 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 I've said this before. I still find and I having him on the show was great. I loved talking to Tim Seeley. His actual comic book art, I find unexciting and not dynamic. It's like there's a lot of like up, down, sort of stiff like sitting and standing and walking and and there's another artist who's not doing a lot of um like John Bushima football ballet like contorting in space. That said, Seely's storytelling here is clear, his visual storytelling. And I really like that panel on the third page where Duke, I mean Blackout is tapping a little vial into a uh, a glass cuz there's a tiny yellow sort of like star shape. It's like a little it's not actually a spark, but it sort of reads like a spark under the index finger, which to me says like tap tap as as just a little visual effect. I think it's uh, I think it's a nice bit. Yeah. And and overall, I think, you know, it's, as, as you say, my takeout is it's difficult to do stuff with short stories and make it feel satisfying. And I think they do a good job of that. And and having like a special like this outside of the main book where there's there's all of these sorts of dynamics and plot points and dangling threads that have been established in the previous run of G.I. Joe, which Joe Casey is not necessarily going to explore. Having something like this, which is just sort of moving some of those those plot points along in the background and checking, you know, checking in on those characters and stuff. It's a it's a really great use of of that extra space and that, that book to do that because, you know, that blackout barrel roll dynamic. Uh, was that they introduced was interesting and it was a shame that if it wasn't going to be followed up by just so having this sort of as a way of checking in on those characters is is a good way of keeping it yeah keeping it sort of fresh in the the reader's mind and when the comic will eventually get back to it it's not like it's coming out of nowhere because we've we've had that check-in so uh yeah i i think an effective use of a short story now, as a as a counterpoint, I like this story. It does stick out to me that the first three pages are wordless, and then page four has 
some dialogue. And then pages four and five are slightly overcompensating because now he's explaining everything to you. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's I guess that's necessary because I didn't know that this was I didn't know that as soon as someone said this is Dwight, I thought, oh, wasn't there a Hasbro employee named Dwight? Wasn't there a Joe named Dwight after that? Oh, is this the guy who's got the brother? Didn't Mark and Jay and I talk about this in a previous episode? Oh, the cover where the guy's flying in a jetpack over the atoll and he looks like a cobra. Okay, that. And then there's this third panel on a tear. Tom, where are you? Good flying tonight, kid. Um, So on balance, I think this is a good story in terms of writing. But I'm aware that there's this sort of trade-off where you get this nice arrangement for the first three panels where it's all told visually. And then like Duke, I mean, Blackout, (laughs) like explains everything to us. I mean, his brother. And I, I wish I wish Mike O'Sullivan could have done that with a lighter touch on the final two pages. But, you know, the idea of the plot is still great. And I don't I don't have any feelings for these two characters, but I think it's neat to check back in with them. And I think Seeley was drawing Seeley was drawing those issues at the time. So it's cool that he gets to check back in uh, with these two. And then we get then we get two panel uh, two profile pages. Yeah, telling us exactly who these, you know, it's because who knows what uh, people's people have read up to this point, or or indeed can remember from the previous run. So it's it's really telling us this is barrel roll, this is blackout, this is what they're all about. So um, makes makes complete sense to to have it there. Uh, in, in, interestingly, the uh, the color choices on the barrel roll data disc profile page, it's not the blue and gray like that cover that I mentioned. It's the brown and beige, although here it shows up more like a maroon from mm-hmm. his uh, version two figure, not 2003, but uh, 2004. And then the blackout profile is colored to match the character's uh, version one figure because that did not get a recolored variant for the following year. You want to talk about pets? Yeah, so pets. Uh, story by Sam Wells, Sean Dove, Mike O'Sullivan, and the rest of the GI Jokers at Devil's Due. Art: Sean Dove, Russ Lowry, Stefano Caselli on that final page, and Danielle Rudoni. Letterer: Brian J. Crowley. Shipwrecks Polly is having a dream where all of the Joe animals are fighting all of the Cobra animals with Crystal Ball in the middle. The, and we conclude with a final panel of the, all of the animals facing off against each other, much like you might have seen in a Uncanny X-Men cover, perhaps, uh, with then the final reveal being um, Stefano Caselli art, much more of a sort of less cartoony, realistic style with a very detailed um, non-cartoony poly um, dreaming in its cage under a sheet with with roadblock and shipwreck speculating what what on earth is Polly dreaming about? All right. So this is a five page story. And uh, I think the thing that pops out the most is that the art is simple and cartoony in a way that we have never seen in a G.I. Joe comic before. Hmm. Uh, even cartoonier than I have. I have never read the G.I. Joe parody that was in Cracked magazine in, I don't know, 1985. I remember being 
I remember being grumpy when someone pointed it out to me because I don't <laughs> like people making fun of G.I. Joe. But uh, this is, you know, this is this is cartoonier than uh, uh, Batman, the animated series. This is like skinny arms and skinny legs and, you know, cartoony eyes. And uh, there are gradients in the color, but it it looks more like a, a, a you know, TV animation cell shaded um, uh, coloring style. And it, it's all building to this joke on the final page, this, this reveal that it's Polly having a dream, right? In, in your plot breakdown, you led with that. And, and the, the way that the story starts, the animals are just, you know, attacking and crystal ball is just gloating. And, and then we cut back to the real world uh, with what has got to be the most realistically drawn panel of Polly in any G.I. Joe comic ever, <laughs> the first panel of the final page. So realistic, I start to realize how much parrots look like lobsters and crabs. <laughs> um, and I say this as a compliment, because um, uh, I'm used to, I sort of forget what parrots actually look like because I'm so used to how simplified Polly is in the toys and in the cartoon, the same way that uh, in a previous episode I said that I'm always surprised when I see German shepherds that they're so big because I'm used to uh, Law and Order and the dog being so small in, in G.I. Joe toys. So uh, how do you feel, Mark, about a, uh, a five-page cartoony backup story that's a gag? It's, it's fine. This is the place to do it. If you're going to have it anywhere... Have it be a dream sequence, <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't mind. I, I enjoy it when people are having a bit of an experimentation, uh, do something, do something different. And if it's sort of slightly to the side of the main continuity and the main story, then all, all the better for it. So, yeah, it's a little bit of fun, and you know, it's a kind of incongruity of of GI Joe. You've got these different sort of takes that you can you can have of G.I. Joe and, you know, the very beginning and it's more grounded and more military, but then you've got, you know, you've got the outrageous bits in the, in the cartoon of, you know, likes of iceberg turning into a killer whale. And you've got, you know, all of the, you know, monster type uh, alien stuff happening towards the back end of the, the line. You've got neon ninjas. So, you know, G.I. Joe is, is different, different things. And if you're going to have a team of pets uh, <laughs> and you want to explain uh, how there's a dolphin on the team <laughs> um you know why not have it this this way so uh, for those of you not so familiar with why a dolphin is on the gi joe team it was a uh, deep six version three from 1992 who came with finback the dolphin i i i think i don't have any i think i just agree that uh a special or an annual is the place to do this kind of story. If this happened in a main issue and the main story was shorter because of it, or they dropped the letters page, you know, I think the, I think the devil's due team five years in has certainly earned a couple of pages to tell a little bit of a joke. And also it, this story is in continuity because, you know, Stefano Caselli, then artist of the main book, America's elite draws the final page, or maybe it's just the final panel and, you know, that's actually Roblox and actually Shipwreck, who are in Shipwreck's room. Uh, I don't know if it's at, at the base or in some kind of, you know, submarine or something. But I also, I also appreciate when, you know, this is written by three people plus everyone else. You know, clearly they're, uh, clearly they've earned this. 
yeah they're just having uh they're just having fun and why not cool are we done with uh this issue do you think yes oh wait wait air detected uh sorry this was back in this is back in the lead story uh air detected the the moment when mercer is tying uh the cord to the door and he's about to go out the window uh this is page 18 uh the sign next to the door says north stairwell level two but the previous page had established that he's on the ninth floor hmm. um i had something that i meant to mention to you uh which i forgot about which was on the first page of the the the, the store brothers um story where he drags that guy into the toilet what is what on earth is that sign on the that wall? that's a baby that's a baby crawling. Right. So it's maybe a baby table. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's actually the symbol <laughs> or if uh, Tim Seeley was just sort of closing his eyes and throwing a dart at a dartboard. You know, like, what do I draw? It's a baby on the floor getting, you know, like, because it sort of looks like someone throwing up. Not, not, not in the act. Not in the act of throwing up, but someone being about to be sick, keeling yeah, over. Yeah, the the more common baby change symbol is a baby like on its back or um, being changed, whereas this is a crawling baby, which made me think: is this is this a special toilet for like very drunk people to <laughs> stagger their way into? Right, right. Let's yo Joe scourge this one. Um, Tim, what do you reckon? uh five the lead lead story was going to be a six but the um too many too many profile pages uh that could have been art art color that i don't like on that second story and and i feel like the i feel like the gag i feel like the actual joke of the um the, the third story there could be it could be funnier and it could do more with the pets with the animals so I feel like sort of, you know, pages one, two, three, four. Uh, anyway, I'm going to give this comic book a five. Okay. I think I'll give it a six. I think the the lead story was uh, quite capably done, was fun, uh, good to touch in on some of those fan favorite Joes outside of the main story. Uh, I like that we got a chance to check in with the Stall Brothers because that was an interesting plot point of the previous arc uh before we got to america's elite uh and and yeah pets was was fun i i didn't mind that at all and i thought the extras the data files and the reserves list was uh, a good value for money way of making this uh, a much more substantial read and, and something that that would you, you could spend quite a lot of time reading through this book and digesting all of that stuff rather than just a, a quick flick through. So uh, yeah, a good money value for money proposition. Very good. Now, before we close out, let's just have a quick look in Postbox the Pit to see what our listeners have been saying to us. Hey, Mark, this is Rusty from San Francisco. As soon as I heard you guys were going to be covering Special Missions Manhattan, I dug out my floppy and went right to work. Overall, I thought it was okay. I liked the heist and the plot and the setup of the issue, but a lot of times I go to Joe for characterization and there just wasn't much there. I thought all the Joes and the main villain were pretty bland. I thought the terrorists were really just there for the sake of the story. We didn't know why they were doing it or what they wanted. 
one of the characters that I was really looking forward to learning about. I don't know why I don't know much about him was Mercer. And I thought what little we got to know about him was offensive and it had a lot more potential. Sort of like we hear about when Storm Shadow becomes a Joe, you know, some people trust him, some people don't. Uh, To me, I didn't understand why they'd ever bother having Mercer on the team. Anyway, I'm about out of time. So I will leave you with that. I look forwarding I look forward, excuse me, to hearing your review. And thanks again for all the hard work you put into this show. It's the highlight of my week when a new one comes out. Thanks. Thanks for the kind words, Rusty. We do put this show together in a little bit of isolation. It's generally, you know, me talking to Tim, maybe with someone else there at the time, and uh, then we throw it out into the world. So it's uh, great to hear that uh, it is appreciated. And Tim won't respond with his opinion because I'm recording this and inserting it into the show long after we've actually spoken. Ha ha. If you want to get in contact with us like Rusty did, there are a number of different ways you can do it. You can go to our website, talkingjoe.co.uk, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the link to leave us a voice message. You can also send us an email. You can also interact with us on Facebook or just listen with your old luggles. Back to me from the past. Let's see, next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the America's elite era of G.I. Joe with, with issues 9 through 12. Back over on the other episodes, uh, we will continue to cover all sorts of interesting stuff. We'll have some interviews lined up, We'll, and I'm sure other things will come up as as well. So, Tim, where can people find you when you are not talking to me about G.I. Joe comics? Video essays from my creative partners and I at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick-and-mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Excellent stuff. You can find more about Talking Joe at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So a big thanks to all our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian and Shane who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that is us done for now. But remember that... Nobody Beats Talking Joe! An international podcast! Laters! Laters!